Open our hearts indeed. My name is Keith Kovacs. Allowed to take my mask off here for a few minutes. Um, I'm reading scripture today. Kelly Finlinson was signed up, but she's a little under the weather, so uh, we wish her well. And uh, I also promised I would wave to my grandchildren who are at our house on Demon Island, and one of them didn't get up in time to catch the early ferry. So you don't wake a three-year-old unnecessarily there. Anyways, today's scripture reading is from the Good News According to Luke, chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. On those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig round it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. Lord, you see us in our fullness. You see our hidden selves. You see all the beauty and all the darkness within us. And yet you do not turn away. You send us your word, which brings life, and we pray that your word, that you would send your word upon us, that Christ would walk among his people and bring us his healing, his mercy, and his peace. In his name we pray. Amen. So I was talking to my wife, Cheyenne, about today's scripture passage. You know, that's what married couples, romantic married couples do, right? They're like, uh, what's the scripture passage for this Sunday? Oh, <laughs> you're speaking biblical to me. Um, <laughs> that's exciting, how, how exciting our life is. Um, good thing she's not here. Good thing she's in children's church. Um, but I told her the scripture passage, and she said, that's the one where Jesus is really harsh, isn't it? <laughs> and I just said, yep. <laughs> and it's harsh, all right. Uh, this passage concludes a series of teachings and sayings by Jesus on the urgency of the times. The old world is falling away. Jesus said, and the new world is at hand. Better get your lives in line, he says, because judgment day 
is a coming. And so some folks in the crowd are looking for signs of this judgment. Hey, Jesus, they say, what about those Galileans who rebelled against Pilate? Remember how Pilate, the Roman governor, strung them up, then drizzled their blood and burned them with their sacrifices? What about them? Was the execution of those rebels God's doing? Was that God's judgment on them for their sins? Jesus, please tell us. It seems like a simple yes or no answer, but a simple answer isn't what Jesus gives. He turns the question back on them. Do you really think, he asks, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were, any, they were worse sinners than any others? Do you think those guys were any worse than anybody else? No, I tell you. No, he says, they weren't. But unless you repent you'll perish like they did. Yikes. Then Jesus doubles down. Or, he says, remember those 18 people killed when the Tower of Siloam caved in on them? The Tower of Siloam is likely this kind of corner turret of Jerusalem city defenses. Think those guys were any worse than the rest of Jerusalem? Again, nope. And again, guess what? Unless you repent, you'll end up six feet under like them, too. In effect, Jesus says that they should be less worried about God's judgment on these Galileans and more worried about God's judgment on them. Repent. Turn your lives around, he says, or else you're ending up under your own pile of boulders. Don't worry so much about them. Worry about you. Like I said, it's pretty harsh. But Jesus pointing out a tendency in us. We have a near universal tendency to judge ourselves in comparison with others. Often we compare ourselves unfavorably to others. Our looks, our money, our prestige, our success, you name it, and we find ourselves wanting. But we also compare ourselves favorably too to other people and their lack of manners, their lack of money, to their unkindness, all the way up to their outward evil and wickedness or just plain ignorance even. I mean, when my kids are rightly in trouble, for example, they will often reply that there are other children out there doing far worse things <laughs> than letting their bikes rust in the rain. It's like if I were to say to my wife, Cheyenne, something like, you know, you think I'm bad. Try being married to so-and-so. He's the worst. Or on a social level, we might say, you think residential schools were bad. It's nothing compared to the Holocaust, right? It's just moral comparison on a much bigger scale. And of course, often we're right. There are always people out there doing worse things than the worst things we do. And we should have some sense of moral proportion. Our culture has in some ways lost the ability to discern between little indiscretions and large 
transgressions. Twitter mobs don't make distinctions between big things and small things. This is all true. But this kind of comparison can be a form of self-justification, a way to avoid, to deflect questions about our own character and to evade responsibility for our own wrongdoing. It's a way we justify ourselves and our lives before others, before ourselves, and before God. To demonstrate that our lives measure up, that they are where they should be. But here Jesus says that simple comparison isn't enough. Jesus says here plainly that we're judged on the basis of our own falling short and not someone else's. In fact, the only person we can really compare ourselves to is Jesus. And none of us measure up exactly favorably to him. If we don't repent, change our minds, turn away from our own stuff, Jesus says our end point's going to be the same as anyone else we can think of. There ain't no metal out there for second last. Like I said, harsh stuff. It's kind of like Jesus likes to hit you with a hammer, doesn't he? So I guess the message is, we better get working. Okay? We better stop comparing ourselves favorably with others and start looking at ourselves. We should get our lives in order now. We better get doing good and give up every inch of resentment in our hearts now before it's too late. And that's probably true. We ought to do all of those things. I don't know about you, though, but I can't do that. I can't do it. Many of us husbands, for example, may do our best work immediately following some calamity we inflicted on our wives. I mean, a little fear, a little urgency can do wonders. It can snap us out of things. You know, I wouldn't know anything about that, of course. This is, this is other people we're talking about. But the truth is that in those cases, the change rarely sticks. The truth is that change is rarely, if ever, permanent. And it's the case without just about everything else in life. For Lent, I gave up negative speech. And that relatively small act of repentance lasted about, lasted about three days. It's over. I failed. It's done. I can't do it. You know. I can't be the person who I've got to be. What about you? If you can, please tell me your secret. If Jesus is right, I can't do it, and you can't do it, we can't do it. If Jesus is right, we're all already good as dead, both literally and figuratively. We're all Good as dead. Good as dead. Now, what kind of preacher would I be if I just, I thought about doing a thing where it's like, amen, and I sat down and tried to see what people would say after. You're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, now, what kind of preacher would I be if I just left it there, though? I mean, most preaching kind of does, doesn't it? 
most speech in general kind of does, left wing, right wing. It's often do this or else. But the gospel, I mean, the gospel is good news. It's good news. The good news is first about what God has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus Christ. The thing that we can't do for ourselves. It's secondarily about us, about our response. Like a stone rippling outwards on a still pond, it begins with God and then moves to our response. This text doesn't seem like it as much by way of good news, but if we pay very close attention We're bound to hear it. Jesus follows this very threatening call to repentance with a parable. There's a vineyard owner, and he goes and he plants a fig tree on his plot. And one day he goes out to pick some figs and nothing. There's no fruit at all. This is like a fig-free fig tree. So he says to his gardener, hey, that tree, we planted that tree three years ago and nothing. Why are we wasting our time, energy, good soil? Chop it down. Get rid of it. And the gardener, of course, knows a little more about the nitty-gritty of planting and growing, and he wants a second chance. He's like, hey, boss, okay, just give me another year. I'll, you know, give it a little TLC, play some classical music, put on some little fertilizer, real manure, the good stuff, not the fake stuff. If there's no fruit by then then you can chop it down. Then you can chop it down. Now, it's tempting to read this parable as kind of just reinforcing Jesus' very threatening call to repentance. God's the vineyard owner. We're the tree not bearing fruit, not repenting, and says we should get hacked down, chop. The gardener's Jesus coming to give us sort of a second chance, a little bit more time. But that's still not good news. Still got the problem. We can't do it. Think about the parable again, though. Think about the fig tree. What does the fig tree, the fig tree actually do here? What, is the, what can a fig tree do? Can a fig tree try harder to grow fruit? This is my impression of a fig tree trying to harder to grow fruit. No. According to the gardener, the fig tree's soil is barren. It is bereft of nutrients. It needs TLC. It needs fertilizer. It needs help from the outside. And in this parable, the tree is the passive recipient. The gardener does everything. And so the tree does, if the tree doesn't grow fruit next season, that ain't the tree's fault. It's the gardener's fault. It's a problem, or it's a problem with the fertilizer. Actually, if we could get the next slide, please. Uh, Yes, the great Anglican preacher Robert Capon, who's featured here in his his apron, because he was also a food critic for the New York Times, and he wrote a few uh, uh, cookbooks, actually. Uh, Supper of the Lamb was one of them, very delightful. In his book on the parables, he tells us that here Jesus is not only the gardener, but he's also the fertilizer. And if Jesus is the gardener, 
He knows exactly what we need. And if he's the fertilizer, he's God in the flesh and can never fail. That his life, death, and resurrection are an injection of divine life from the outside. Forgiveness to those who are dead, to those who are dead in their sins, and life to those who are wasting away, which means you and me. For all of us trees who just can't seem to, you know, bear fruit on our own. And I'm going to quote Capon at length here because I thought it was wonderful. The world lives, Capon says, the world lives as the fig tree lives under the rubric of forgiveness. The world, of course, thinks otherwise in its blind wisdom. It thinks it lives by merit and reward. It likes to imagine that salvation is essentially a pat on the back from a God who either thinks we are good eggs or if he knows how rotten we actually are, considers our repentance sufficient to make up for our unsuitability. But by the foolish of God, he says, that is not the way it works. By the folly of the cross, Jesus becomes sin for us, and he goes outside the camp for us, and he is relegated to the dump for us, and he becomes garbage and compost, awful and manure for us. And then he comes to us. The gardener who on the cross said, forgive to his Lord and Father comes to us with his own body dug deep by nails and spears and his own being made dung by his death and he sends our roots resurrection. He does not come to see if we are sorry. He knows our repentance isn't worth the hot air we put into it. He does not, con- not care to come, to- he does not care to count anything. Unlike the Lord in the parable, he cares not even a fig for our- any part of our record, good or bad. He comes only to forgive. He comes only to forgive for free, for nothing. On no basis, because like the fig tree, we are too far gone to have a basis. On no conditions, because like the dung of death, he digs into our roots. He is too dead to insist on prerogatives. We are saved gratis, says Capon. We are saved by grace. We do nothing, and we deserve nothing. It is all absolutely and without qualification one huge, hilarious gift. It is all absolutely and without qualification one huge, hilarious gift. According to Capon, Christ came precisely because we are unable to repent. Precisely because we're so caught up in comparison that we can barely see ourselves truly. We're unable to fix or free ourselves of our own strength. We're unable to bear necessary fruit on our own. And God does it all from beginning to end. One huge, hilarious gift. One that can never be earned but only received 
by faith, by trusting in the truth. As long as I am in him, Capon says, as long as I am in him, I bear fruit. As long as his death feeds my roots, I will never be cut down. I will never be cut down. And this, of course, begs the que- always begs the question, well, if God does everything, what do we even do at all? Do we just kick back and let the world go to hell in a handbasket? Does it mean we should give up on all the good work that needs to be done for the sake of our world? No. No. Like the epistle of James says, faith without works is dead. True faith bears fruit. What it means is that all, our comparing, all of our comparing ourselves to the goodness or evil of others is no longer necessary. If we have been justified, if we have been set right with God in the universe, we no longer have to earn our worth anymore. We don't have to earn forgiveness. Because in God's eyes, we've already been made worthy. In God's eyes, you are already worthy. Full stop. There's nothing you've got to do to earn it. What it means is that we're actually freed from the burden of self-justification. We can be honest about ourselves without fear of destruction and let God work on us. Free from self-occupation. Free to love God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves because we're no longer keeping score. The difference is the sweet sequence. Grace comes first, then gratitude. Because life's no longer about earning points, it becomes about showing gratitude for what we've been given and sharing it with others. The knowledge that this life is gift from beginning to end will actually somehow bear fruit in us. The cross is compost that generates life within us. It elicits repentance out of us. It makes impossible change possible. By grace. Friends, in all of our efforts to compare ourselves with the goodness of others or the lack thereof, in all our efforts to reform ourselves, in all of our efforts to repent, to bear the kind of fruit in our lives that we need to, we just can't seem to do it. If life is about, primarily about our repentance, our reform, our fixing, fixing our lives, then we are done for. If so, like Jesus says, then we are as good as dead. The good news, though, is that Jesus lives. Though we are dead, Jesus lives. And he came to raise the dead to raise people like us out of the dust. Even though we're as good as dead, God is our never-ending compost pile generating eternal life. Even though we can't live up to what's required of us or pay up what's owed, God has already paid the price. Even though we can't save ourselves, God has come in Christ not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And as long as we are in him, like Capon says, as long as we are in him, 
we bear fruit. As long as his death feeds our roots, we will never be cut down. And for this, thanks be to God. Amen.